So I'll probably say something that will offend you at some point during the sermon. So uh, I'm just so I'm going to apologize up front. Uh, considering, and not to make light of it, this is a very tough text, and it's a text that's been misused by Christians in the past. And um, part of it is so I, you know, sort of budgeted 25 minutes to cover these topics, and we're talking about wives submitting to husbands and slavery in scripture. And so these are tough topics that require more time. So it's probably my own folly for trying to tackle it all at once, but we're going we're gonna to do it. Um, the Bible is, is, is the word of God. And it, Hebrews 4.12 says this, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit joints and marrow. It, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. If God's word speaks to our hearts and it speaks to our sinful condition, it exposes our sin and selfishness, when we read scripture, it should bristle us a little bit because it's cutting to the part of us that God is seeking to reform and restore from its broken sinful nature to a good and uh, renewed, new life, new way in him. So it, it should agitate us a bit, and it might, that might be part of what's going on here. Uh, so we're going to dive right into this. This passage flows from where we left off last time I was here preaching. We were talking about clothing ourselves with Christ. Christ has given us this beautiful new way of life that we can put on every day, and all these, uh, a virtuous life, and a, and a life that follows after him and honors him. And Basically, when we do that, when we come to know Jesus by faith, and when he becomes the Lord of our lives, everything is then up, is up for grabs for him to work on. Therefore, everything we do and say is now in his hands and under his lordship. And it starts with, in that passage, it starts with how we treat each other as a church family. And then you take that home with you and how you live it out in the context of a home, and then you take it to work with you. You, you take it everywhere with you. And this is uh, some examples today, three sets of exhortations about how to take this home and how to take it to work, living under the lordship of Jesus. How does this work out in our daily lives? And there's three sets of obligations, and they're all reciprocal obligations. There's uh, there's two parties who are equally obligated to one another. And I want to look at these three and draw some conclusions for all of us as we look at these three examples that Paul gives as he's writing to the church in Colossae. So let's pray as we begin. Father God, I pray that you just keep me from error in this time. And if I say anything, Lord, that is in error, that it would just bounce off the ears of those who are listening here. Um, but we know that you do speak to us through your word and and you love us, you refine us, you reshape us. As a good and loving gardener prunes a plant, Lord, you prune our lives that we might be even more fruitful for your glory. So we pray that that would be during this time. We thank you that you love us enough uh, to show us these things. We give this time to you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, other word of warning I'll give before we jump in is that you might, you might be inclined to exclude yourself from some of these examples. For example, you might say, well, I'm not married, so these instructions for marriage don't apply to me. 
I don't have children or I don't have children in my home, so the parenting thing doesn't apply to me, and maybe I don't have a job, so the work thing doesn't apply to me. Um, unfortunately, that's, you, can't, you can't exclude yourself from these things. These are just examples of how the implication of the lordship of Jesus plays out in your everyday. So as you think about how it would play out in the context of marriage, even if you're not married, think about how that would play out in the context of whatever relationships that you have been called to. So he's naming three sets of relationships, but it's the, the principle behind it is still very real for every one of us. So none of us is exempt or off the hook in any of these ways. So, uh, so consider that as we, as we jump into these three things. First one, husbands and wives, verse 18. The exhortation here, the instruction here is, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So let me just give a word of what this does not mean. This does not mean that a wife here is being called to submit as, as if a doormat, you know, at the, uh, to be stomped on by an unloving husband. This does not mean that a wife doesn't have an opinion. This doesn't mean a wife is anyhow less intelligent or skillful than a husband. That's, that's not true. And in many cases, it's, it's uh, quite the opposite. Um, it doesn't mean that the wife is the servant of a lazy husband, where uh, you picture the husband coming home and having claimed to work so hard all day to provide for the family, plops himself down on the couch to be somehow served uh, by a wife. That's not, that image is nowhere near this. Um, and it doesn't mean that wives have to do everything that a husband asks. That's not the instruction here either. And clearly, he says, as is fitting in the Lord, there is... Um, there can be an unbalance of uh, faith and of, uh, there can be things that are out of line that certainly wouldn't fit into this. And, and I'll say this too, Colossians is a very short letter and Paul doesn't write a lot to the church in Colossae. He wrote a much longer letter to the church in Ephesus and he, he says these same, these same exact teachings except he expands them a little bit, which is helpful. And in some ways I, I I would wish that he had written a little bit more here, but he didn't, and we have what we have. Uh, but in the parallel passage in Ephesians, Paul talks about uh, wife submit to husband, but he says in verse 21, he says, submit to one another. So submission in Christian marriage is a mutual thing, as Paul has taught it elsewhere. And actually, if you read Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, it takes this same teaching and really expands it into a broader context. So I think we can freely use that parallel passage to understand this one. So it's, submission was a very mutual thing as Paul taught it elsewhere. And it really does, and in that context in Ephesians, he's talking about the fact that this reflects Jesus. It reflects what Jesus did. Jesus was fully God. So you have God the Father, God the Son, both fully God, so equal in their divinity, yet Jesus was submitted to the will of the Father. So therefore, in any human relationship, you could be equal with someone and willingly submitted to somebody at the same time. So submission does not mean unequal. And the Apostle Paul, as he teaches, he goes out of his way to remind uh, Galatians 3.28, says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's a beautiful equality of male and female, of husband and wife that the Bible teaches that was 
radical for its day. This is spoken into the first century Roman world that, uh, that in a lot of ways the, the status and the value of women was very low. And here, the, the, here scripture teaches that there's a beautiful equality. But equality doesn't mean identicalness in that sense. So what does this mean? Wives submit to husbands. I'll offer you this. I'm just going to read it so I don't get it wrong here. Submission is a great expression of Christ-like love to respect your husband's good desire to serve and lead your family. Let me me say that again. Submission is a great expression of Christ-like love to respect your husband's good desire to serve and lead you and your family. In the, again, in the parallel passage in Ephesians, Paul uses the word respect. He says, husbands, you must love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And he goes on and he says, the wife must respect her husband. See, submission in that sense is very easy when, when there's benefit to the one who, who submits. You know, I'll happily submit to someone who's going to lay down their life for me, who cares for me that much. When submission is forced, or it becomes distorted when it's, it's taken to the advantage of one person. In that sense, submission can be a vicious tool used for evil. But in Jesus Christ, it can actually be a beautiful thing when it's well done. And this is as is fitting in the Lord. That's, that's the image here. Now, the Bible doesn't say how this plays out in the day-to-day you know, kind of running a house and uh, raising children and how does this, what does this look like? And I think the Bible is very wise in not giving a lot of detail here. Because every marriage is different. And because we're all wired differently and the way that we relate to one another is very different. But the, but the important thing is that we have, the, it's the Christ-like attitude as we approach that relationship in marriage. Not whose job it is to do what and who makes the call in certain decision. That is to be lived out, but the, the principle holds true. Therefore, it's very timeless of a teaching. And it's not just wives to husband. There's a responsibility now, verse 19, husbands to wives. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Basically, and again, the parallel passage, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Christ came with all the authority of God all the authority of the creator of the universe, and he chooses to to serve, chooses to lay down his life, not to use his his authority to to gain to his own advantage, but to make himself nothing, to serve and to love. So here the instruction to husbands is love your wife, adore your wife, die for her. And both sides get instructions in this. There's, there's, a, there's a, an equal responsibility. And we do need to appreciate the timelessness of the teaching of Scripture on one hand, and on the other hand, acknowledge the vast differences between the culture and the context in which this teaching is spoken. And we need to hold those, both those things in tension. So we, we, read this, we read a passage like this, you know, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, and it's a little shocking today. And somebody who wasn't familiar with Scripture or Christianity might feel bristled by that. In the day that this was written, that is a shocking statement 
Not that wives would submit to husbands. What's shocking is that wives are addressed directly as responsible moral agents and responsible part of a community of faith. That was, in the first century, that would be shocking. That women are not to be treated as as property or as uh, less than equal in, in any sense. So it was, this is actually shockingly progressive in the time it's, in the time in which it's written. So we hold that tension. Um, but, and, I, and I'm leaning on the Ephesians passage a little bit, but why here would, would the instruction be women or wives submit and men you know, do not be harsh but love your, your wives? I'm going to speak in very broad generalities, which is just a bad idea a lot. So, so I'll apologize. This is the part you can, you can take this or leave it. But, but just, just try this for a second. If you have a group of women kind of in a closed system and these women are relating to each other and there is great esteem between the women, the esteem that they have for each other is often expressed, not always, but just generally expressed through love and affection. That there'll be a lot of love and affection in that group if there's high esteem. If you take a group of men in a closed system and they're relating to one another, and there's high esteem in that group, you typically wouldn't use the words love and affection to describe that. You'd use words like respect and deference. That's how the esteem would be shown to each other. Now in marriage, you take a woman and a man, and in general, a woman who might be more inclined to love and affection, and a man who might be inclined to respect and deference, and now the instruction is, you need to love your spouse in a way that's difficult for you to love. What is the easiest way for you to love? What is your sort of default nature? You need to break beyond that and and love your spouse in a way that they're going to receive it and understand it more powerfully. Here, the teaching of Scripture cuts against selfishness. It cuts cuts against lazy love. If you read a book like Gary Chapman's Love Languages, the whole point is we don't all express and receive love in the same ways, that we need to learn how our spouse receives love so that we can give it in a way that will be received well not just the way that I like to give it. You know, some people are gift givers and they love to give gifts. Some people love to get gifts and other people don't really care. Some people are quick to give words of affirmation and some people receive words of affirmation very well. It, it, others, it, it doesn't mean as much. So if you're a gift giver and your spouse needs more words of affirmation than words of love, then you're, you're off balance there. So in a very general sense, that's why you would have different different groups would, be, would need to consider love in different ways. There was a whole book, um, there was a whole book that was written. Emerson Egerich wrote a book called Love and Respect. He said in, in the context of marriage, a woman's greatest need is, is love and affection, and a man's greatest need is respect. And he bases this on the Ephesians passage. And there was actually a small group that studied this book together. Very controversial, by the way. And I got a lot of phone calls that during that season. Um, but, oh, did, was anybody part of that group? Okay, ask them all questions regarding these things. No, I'm just teasing. You can, um, but it's, it, there, there, is, there is something to this. And his whole point was when, when one of these things is missing in a marriage, things can get out of balance. So you can take that or leave it, but this is, um, it says what it says. So second thing, uh, verse 20. This is now children and parents. This is our second set of instruction. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. 
this makes more sense to us today. You, you think about a, a home where children are undisciplined, where children are disobedient, and you watch a television show like Super Nanny, and it all boils down to, you know, who's in control here? Who's running this house? And undisciplined children can be a very, uh, it can easily get things out of balance. And, and again, here we have the Apostle Paul teaching children directly. Children, obey your parents. This is a good thing, that children are part of a Christian community. Children can live out a Christ-like life of obedience. Just as Jesus is obedient to the will of the Father, children can be obedient to their earthly parents. In the ancient Near East, in the first century, children were basically property. But here, children are not property. Children are responsible individuals, humans who are loved by God, who can live a way of life that honors Christ. So this is, again, this is very progressive. It's very, very much ahead of where the world was at. And so the reciprocal obedience is for the children, the reciprocal responsibility to fathers, which could mean parents in general, but here it's specifically the word fathers, which is a great reminder to dads that dads have a very important and active role parenting children. And when dads become absent in that process or sort of leave that, oh, my wife takes care of that stuff, that's, this is out of balance. And, and a number of you do, uh, there's a number of people in our church who do prison ministry, if you go into a prison and you start talking about uh, relationship to fathers, there's a, there's a very high correlation between incarceration and absence of father figure in the life of, of prisoners, male and female. And we see it over and over. And this is the, it's, so this is very important. And the, it's do not embitter your children. You know, do not nag or belittle a child. Do not have just so many arbitrary rules and, and make the life in your home so, um, so hard that your child can't be their own individual. You have parents who just want to make a carbon copy of themselves and their child and not let their child be an individual. Or try to have their children live out their unmet hopes and dreams of their own life trying to relive it through the life of their child to avoid the mistakes that I made and to, to do the things that I wasn't able to do. And it can be very stifling to put that type of expectation on a child. And so we have the extreme. We, on one end, you have an undisciplined child. On the other end, you have an embittered or a dispirited child who's just stifled. Um, so you could end up selfish or um, impulsive on one end. On the other end, you could just be stifled and inhibited, and there's this beautiful balance of obedience of a child and, a, and gentle parenting that really does nurture a healthy home. And again, this is, um, God does not treat us harshly as our sins deserve. God does not just put arbitrary rules in our life, that God is a loving father who knows what's best and treats us that way, and that's how we can parent in that way. So that's the second set of instructions. Third set of instructions is to slaves and masters, verse 22. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Uh, let me, yeah, let me stop there. The, so, first century slavery was a lot different than we understand slavery as it was expressed in, let's say, pre-Civil War America. It, in some trans, and in some ways, we, we almost want another word for it. Some translations would say servants 
obey your masters. I mean, slave is the right word. We're talking about somebody who was, did not have a right to just leave. We, we're talking about workers who many times were not paid. So slavery is really the right word, but in some ways, we need a different word to describe this, or we would want a different word. In first century, slavery is very common. It was, uh, yes, you were someone else's property in a sense, but you could, you could live actually a very good life. A lot of skilled workers were slaves. If, if you went to a doctor, you're probably going to someone who's a slave. Uh, if you are you know, a skilled craftsman or a teacher, likely of the slave class. Um, or you could be sort of you know, a mine worker or work much more harsh conditions and your life expectancy would be very low. So you, it's hard to say slavery was one thing because it depended on what you did and it depended on who, who was in charge of you. Uh, so you could have a very high, you know, relatively high status. Some people would actually enter into slavery as a career move, so to speak, because you could gain skills and you could be cared for and be treated very well like a family member. Or you could be treated like trash. So again, I can't, I can't say that it's one thing. Many slaves earned wages. That was part of a proper way of somebody who was a servant in your household to earn wages and you could earn your freedom in many ways. Some slaves uh, received enough, sort of like indentured servitude as we understand that, could earn enough income to then buy their own freedom. And some slaves chose not to. This, this, I'm part of this family and I will continue to serve in this way even though I could be free. In pre-Civil War United States, I mean, this we're talking about in, forcefully imprisoning and importing uh, foreign people to work as slaves with no hope of, uh, with, with, under very harsh conditions, with no hope of freedom. It's enslaving, really imprisoning people in that way. And, uh, it, and while it is true that there were Christians through the history even of our country who used a passage like this to say, hey, look, slavery's fine because the Bible talks about slavery and doesn't condemn it here. The Bible does, even though Christians have done that, that doesn't mean the Bible ever condoned that type of slavery or slavery in general. The Apostle Paul himself told slaves, he said, if you can earn your freedom, you should. That it's better to be free, that this is not a good, just a good thing. But that's not his point here. His point here isn't to speak about the institution and the, the social reality of slavery in the first century. He's talking about, no he's, he's talking to if, whether you're somebody who, who has servants or if you are a servant, how, what it means that Jesus is Lord of your life. And, again, he's addressing slaves directly. This is shocking that they are, slaves are part of the Christian community. You are just as much a Christian, a follower of Jesus, as someone else. That you are an individual and you have rights in that sense. So how do we understand it? How do we apply it to our own lives? Really, you can think of it as how do I live as a Christian if I'm in authority over other people or if I'm a Christian and I have a really terrible job? And I don't think that's making too light of it. I think that's essentially culturally what we're talking about here. Um, so here's the teaching. Verse 22, slaves or servants, obey your earthly masters in everything. Do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart. Reverence for the Lord. 
Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you're serving. It's about the supremacy of Jesus Christ in your life. As soon as Jesus is the Lord of your life, everything you then do, you can do for his glory. You do because he's in control. So it's not just when your master's eyes are on you, but as you work and do your work, God has given you your ability and the opportunities that you have that you, that you can work hard. And you picture, this is very timeless kind of teaching. You can picture somebody whose job it is to mop the floor, you know, kind of leaning on a mop, maybe against the wall and trying to catch a quick snooze. And you hear footsteps coming around and you, you, know, you start working hard because somebody's walking by and then you kind of lean on it again. Or, or, or more likely, you know, somebody, somebody's working at a cash register and they're, you know, they, they've got a device kind of behind it and they're kind of looking at customers. And, it's like nobody stares straight down at their feet and smile like that. It's just, you're clearly, you're clearly on a device and uh, you know, when then somebody comes, oh, you know, and then you casually just like, you slip it back in your pocket as if you were working. Picture the, you know, at a desk, you know, watching YouTube videos of cats, you know, riding vacuum cleaners or whatever <laughs> funny internet videos you like. You know, and then boss comes and whoop, close that window and now you're back on your email, you're working hard. This is the, this is, this is the sinful human heart that just uh, is, can be lazy. And, and uh, you know, God sees your, your work's important to God. Even your secular, what you would call your secular work, God cares about that. God cares about how excellently you do your day-to-day tasks. That's important to God. And that's very empowering that you can work excellently in all that you do, even when you're not just you know, teaching someone else about Jesus, or you're not, you're displaying what it means to be God's child as you work hard and as you do it well. The reciprocal uh, instruction is to those who are in power or who have those underneath them, masters, you know, bosses, provide verse, this is verse one in chapter four, provide your slaves what is right and fair because you know that you have a master in heaven. Look, you need to provide what's fair and right because if Jesus is your Lord, then you're a slave to him. So who are you to be harsh with someone else when God has been so gracious to you and so beyond fair to you in providing for you? So if you own your own business, you can't say, well, this, I, this is my business. I'll do it the, the way I please. You know, if you're a Christian, you say, this is God's business. And I do this to please him. That's the whole new mindset in Jesus. So those are the three. Those are the three Wives to husbands, children and parents, and uh, slaves and masters, or workers and bosses. All right, so some implications of this. Three things, real quick. One, discipleship is whole life. That when we follow Jesus, it's not a sometimes thing. It's not just a, a, a spiritual thing I do on the side, but it's something that invades my entire life, and nothing, therefore, is off limits from him. You know, and it flows from this verse 17. Whatever you do... Whether in word or deed, you do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You know, earlier in the, in the same chapter, we haven't, gotten, we haven't covered this verse yet in the series, but Paul teaches, he says, Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. There's a temptation when we read a verse like that to say, look, my priority is not on these earthly things. My priority is up there in heaven. So I go about my day, and I'm not worried about 
this stuff. I'm sort of out there. Or there's moments where I'm out there and then I have to just get back to my regular thing till the next opportunity I have to be out there. And because and, that's very freeing. It's kind of an escape, almost an escapism. But this, gets, this idea gets grounded in the grit of every day, in the mundane of the tasks that I don't like to do, of the relationships that are difficult. In my very home as I parent and as, as I'm a husband or a wife, it's just, it's all, it's, it's in that context that my heart and my mind is on heavenly things as they play out in my day to day. It's every area of life. So discipleship is whole life. We've been saying that over and over, but we can't say it enough. Second implication is that my motivation for how I live is Jesus Christ. Every relationship, all my work, it's redefined in my relationship to Jesus. Just hear these words as, you read, as we read through the scripture, verse 18. As is fitting in the Lord, verse 20, this pleases the Lord. 22, with reverence for the Lord. 23, working for the Lord. Verse 24, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Verse uh, 4.1, you have a master in heaven. This is all about my relationship to Jesus that's informing these other relationships. Jesus is my motivation. Therefore, this is very different than a way of... This is not just instructions on how to live. This is, this is examples of how, when we put Christ as Lord of our life, it can live out in our lives. Let me flip that. This is not us living an excellent life so that we can connect to God. This is us connected to God that brings about a new way of life. One is religion. That's me doing what's right so I can experience God. That's not what we're talking about, religion. We're talking about the gospel, his grace received in my life that now is flowing from me to the world around me. The, the motivation is very important there. Otherwise, you'll just get frustrated. You'll just try harder to be a better spouse, to be a better parent, to be a better worker. You'll fall short and you'll feel guilty. As opposed to understanding how loved and accepted you are and freed to live this way of life. The motivation is Jesus. So discipleship is all of life. Second, the motivation is Jesus. And lastly, this is all about relationships. Some people are, are naturally wired more task-oriented. Some people are more wired relationship-oriented. That's okay. But relationships are so important. We are connected to people everywhere. And it's, it's relationships where the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what he's done, is lived out around us. So if we are committed to Jesus, we have to be committed to other people. That means we have to know other people. We need to be praying for other people. We need to get to know, you know, know, notice people. As you walk by people on the street, as you interact in a store and in a place of work, no person is just an object. They are created by God. They have value. Every person. And we need to always remember that. We can notice people and love people, pray for people. We have the Pray for Six little bookmark, and you can just... Write down names of six people in your life, in your everyday, who you can just be trusting the Lord with and just continually fostering relationships. This is just, this, it's not optional. You can't be committed to Jesus and not be committed to his mission to seek and save people, individuals, to be part of that. So those three things, uh, we take those with us tomorrow. Uh, there is no area of your life that's off limits to Jesus. This is, not a, this is not instructions to how to have a better marriage. This is not instructions how to be a better worker, how to be a better parent. This is us demonstrating 
what Christ has done in our lives. This is us demonstrating to a world that's lost and broken that there's a way out. There is a way out of the brokenness. There's a way out of the anger and the unforgiveness and all the things that drag us down. There is a way out, and it comes through Jesus. So this is not detailed advice. It's an expression of, of living it out, whatever your role. If you're a husband, a wife, a parent, a child, or a worker, what, whatever your roles in life are, this is where we live it out. And may Christ be Lord of every area of your life. Amen.